This morning we are in Mark chapter 15, um, verses 16 through 39. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. (coughs) Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then some of those standing near heard this. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Hey, good morning. Let's pray real quick together. Father, uh, you gave us your son, Jesus. Um, help us to see what to do with that, what it does with us. Um, we pray this morning as we seek to examine ourselves that you would take away um, barriers of pride and um, fear that, that keep us from, from seeing what exactly it is that Jesus has redeemed and renewed inside of us. Um, bless our time together, we pray. Um, amen. Oh, so, hey, I'm, I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you don't know me, um, and probably if you do too, I'm not the, like, the most in-touch cultural guy in the room. Uh, you know, I'm no Cam Michael, right? But I get around every once in a while, and, and when I notice a trend, that usually means that it's like you have to be living under, under a rock to not notice it. Um, and so a trend and a thread that I think we can all recognize in our culture today, uh, where we like to focus is self-love, self-care, 
positive vibes, as the kids would say, and a pursuit of personal happiness. And, and we affir- I think we affirm a lot of that. We are fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image. We're worthy of being loved, even by ourselves, right? But why is it, my question for us is, why is it that we keep coming back to self-love over and over again? That, it's, that, that well never really seems to satisfy, and we keep coming back to that same exercise. I might posit that perhaps there's some really dark things inside of us that don't quite die as easily as we thought. Maybe they don't die at all. I think that until we admit that we aren't perfect on our own, we can't save ourselves. We may not be able to save ourselves at all. And I just don't think for our culture and for us that there's this light at the end of this tunnel for those that are pursuing that sort of self-happiness when it lacks the deep, unconditional, sacrificial love um, from a God who is love. I mean, what do you do when you encounter darkness or trauma or evil deep within you and all you're trying to approach it with is positive vibes and and self-love? How does that get renewed without payment, without an affirming voice that you are wholly and truly and perfectly loved? I think that's where we need the cross. That's where we're focusing on the cross today. It affirms both our dignity and our belovedness, but it also affirms our brokenness and our need. And those two things put together is where we see Jesus on the cross and where we want to look at today. So if you're a note taker, this is the the thing to write. The crowning work of Jesus on the cross was his descent into the depth of our darkness so that we could rise with him to experience renewal in our relationship with God, ourselves, and with others. The crowning work of Jesus on the cross was his descent into the depth of our darkness so that we could rise with him and experience renewal in our relationship with God, with ourselves, and with others. So first, just the crowning work of Jesus. This morning, we're looking at Mark's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. In Mark's narrative, he focuses on a few snapshots or a few vignettes as we're snapping through the passage. And it's about the, on the night uh, before Jesus was crucified, when he was betrayed, and then on his crucifixion. And all of these vignettes, they share the same theme, which is Jesus as king. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is king here. And it's on his death on the cross that that's when it marks his crowning achievement as the king of the new kingdom of God. So Mark never spares any words, but Mark says in 10 words, Luke and John will take 50 words to say. And so when he says something, we need to pay attention. And the symbols he does call out again and again is that Jesus is king. They crown him with a crown of thorns. They put a purple robe on him to to, to suggest majesty as they mock him. Pilate is asking Jesus, he's like, are you the king of the Jews? The soldiers, as they mock Jesus, they call him the king of the Jews. And the mockers at the cross say to him in verse 32, it says, They say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then in verse 25, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the written notice, what they put on the cross of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is King of the Jews. Or so that those who crucified him mocked him to say so. But of course, the irony here that Mark wants us to see is that Jesus is king. He's just not the king that the people expected. 
He's the king of this upside down, subversive kingdom. We've been talking about these last few months in the book of Mark together. King Jesus's kingdom is one where the first become last, right? Where the dead are raised to life, where wealth and power aren't actually what they seem. And a personal relationship with God is actually available to those who have eyes to see, who have ears to hear, and who have a heart of faith to believe. Because Christ's death on the cross, it's tragic and it's heartbreaking, and it really is. I don't want us to miss that. But it's also the crowning achievement of a king of this upside-down kingdom. In fact, in Mark 10, when uh, Jesus is telling his disciples of the suffering that he's about to endure, he says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to many. He was always looking to the cross as the core of his mission and purpose here on earth. He calls himself the Son of Man in that passage, which is, um, which is an allu- uh, it alludes to his uh, divinity. And then he tells the disciples that the Son of Man, Jesus, is coming to make a payment and to make a ransom for many. That is, the Son of God became man to go to the cross, and then Jesus tells us to make a payment for our sins. And we find out at the cross what it means for Jesus to be the king of the new kingdom of heaven. Uh, it's a strange king. It's a strange day. Even though some of us, I think, have heard this story or a version of this story many times, uh, it's easy for those words to slip off of, off of us and not see how really mysterious today's, that day's ver- uh, those day's events were. I mean, listen, in verse 33, at noon, middle of the day, darkness comes over the whole land until three in the afternoon, three hours of mysterious darkness. And then when, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Some version, uh, some gospels say that there was an earthquake. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then when the centurion, the, hard, the hardened Roman soldier who had done this over and over again in his life, he stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. The God of the universe is hanging on a cross, which Deuteronomy says makes him cursed by God. Mark is showing us how backwards this whole day is. And he's also giving us a picture of how an upside down kingdom comes into a world full of brokenness. Mark's account paints a picture of a perfect man paying for the errors and the mistakes and the sins of the Jews and the Romans, right? Jesus was obviously paying here because what was happening is they were really powerful hungry, both the Jews and the Romans were. That was, and that power for hunger was fed by their bloodlust and their dehumanization. But that's actually the, the kind of political and circumstantial events of the cross are really just a hint of the crowning work of Christ on the cross. The real suffering and the real payment of Jesus was much deeper as he stooped down in his descent into our darkness. So the crowning work of Jesus and then his descent into our darkness. C.S. Lewis describes the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as this whole huge pattern of descent down, down, and then up again. One has a picture of a strong man trying to lift a very big, complicated burden. He stoops down and gets himself right under it so that he himself disappears. And then he straightens his back and moves off with the whole thing swaying on his shoulders. It's at the cross where we see Jesus under this great burden of our darkness as he stoops down low in preparation for lifting us up. The great plan of Jesus and the cross was for the Son of God to sink down all the way into our depths, to pull us 
out of our dark and brokenness. The message reads Psalm 18 like this, and this gives us this great picture. But me he caught, reached all the way from sky to sea. He pulled me out of that ocean of hate, that enemy chaos, the void in which I was drowning. They hit me when I was down, but God stuck by me. He stood me up on a wide open field. I stood there saved, surprised to be loved. The gospel message hinges on this idea that Jesus goes on the cross, goes to the cross because the darkness within us is so deep, so broken, that it actually separates us from what it means to be human and separates us from truly knowing our creator. Although I think that we suspect that we're a lot more broken than we actually care to admit. We have this way into tricking ourselves into thinking that we're not so bad. We've got this terrifying ability to make peace with ourselves by glossing over our evil and rejecting anything inside of us that we don't find nice about ourselves. We have a really, it's really easy to do that. But I think that the cross forces us to deeply consider whether or not we really are separated from life with God because of our sin and whether or not we really are full of evil that precludes us from a relationship with him. I mean, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If the gospel writers are right, he's crying out from the pain of God, turning his face away from Jesus because he took on the consequences of our sin and rebellion. Brendan Manning says this about acknowledging our sinfulness and selfishness. He says, if we gloss over our selfishness and rationalize the evil within us, we can only pretend we are sinners and therefore only pretend we have been forgiven. If we rationalize the evil within us, we can only pretend we are sinners and therefore only pretend that we are forgiven. Those who stop short of the evil in themselves will never know what love is about unless and until we face our sanctimonious viciousness, our, our aggressive glossing over of our sins. We cannot grasp the meaning of the reconciliation of Christ affected on Calvary's hill for us on the cross. We can only pretend to be forgiven. So a few years ago, I got in a, uh, a very minor car wreck, a collision, if you will, like a barely a fender bender, but, and it was certainly other, the other guy's fault. Like if you ever heard the story from me, it was, it was the whole thing. It was his fault. Okay. But the insurance company didn't want to pay. Big surprise, right? So I fought about it with them for weeks and weeks, lots of phone calls, and then finally they admitted, they said, okay, fine. It was 49% my fault, which is, what is that? Like, why can they just say, I, I don't know. It was, what, what kind of concept is that? So then I had to pay for half the damages, right? And it became, I had this spiritual moment uh, when that happened because it became really clear to me that when damage is done, somebody's got to pay. There's a thousand dollar bill out in the world, whether or not I like it. And even if I had forgiven the guy and paid for it myself, which I didn't, I made him pay. Even if I had forgiven him, right, I'm still paying the $1,000. Like me forgiving doesn't make the bill go away. The damage that we've done to ourselves, to creation, to others, to our relationship with God, it has a bill. Like that concept is deep within the fabric of the universe, right? But by his death, Mark tells us that Jesus is paying that bill. 
He took on the price of our sins to make a way to life with God in his kingdom. This happens at the moment of his death. Mark dramatically shows us that at the moment of his death, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. John says, at that moment, he says, it is finished. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Later on in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews explains the significance of Christ's sacrifice and the tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom. The temple curtain was what separated the God's people from the most holy place where God dwelt. And he says this in, in Hebrews chapter 10. And where sins have been forgiven, sacrifice for sins is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is the curtain that tore his, at his death, that is the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we confess, for he who promised is faithful. He descended into the depths of our darkness. But, and then the last, kind of the last section here is raised to renew, renewed relationships. Raised to renewed relationships. See, I can do alliterations too. Yeah, I'm learning. Um, Right, but thank God that that's not the end of our separation. And his work doesn't just end on the cross. Like that's a, that's a, that's a gospel I don't want as, a, as one that leaves Jesus on the cross. Instead, he rose from the grave and he brought us with him, making renewed relationship with God, ourselves, and others possible. So first, a renewed relationship with God. It's really no surprise, right, that the first broken relation, relationship by our darkness is the one that we would have with God. Uh, but God loved us so deeply, so fully, so truly that Paul can say in Romans 5, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were made to be loved and to be loved by him who the scripture calls love itself. That love tears open the divide and allows us, as Hebrews 10.22 says, to draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Where we used to be separated, we can come to him now in loving prayer in his presence. Where we were once under his wrath, we are now beloved sons and daughters so we can rest in our belovedness. And where we were dead without God, we now have the Holy Spirit who brings life and who gives us his presence always. And then because we find renewal in relationship with God, we have renewal in our relationship with ourselves available to us. So with God and then with ourselves. The death of Jesus on the cross demands, I think, that we acknowledge the deep darkness and pain inside of each of us. Like if it happened, it's because there's deep darkness and pain in each one of us. Why would Jesus need to die if there wasn't an inescapable brokenness consuming each of us? And so by acknowledging that, then we can experience that belief deep within our souls 
that we were still so worth loving, as Paul says in Romans 5, that Christ took on our brokenness, darkness, and sin to carry us up with him out of the grave. That's baptism, right? That's what we're celebrating today. Christ came down, he was buried, and he rose again. I am dead in my sins. I am buried under the water, and I come out cleansed and renewed as I follow Christ in his resurrection. This is why baptism is so great, why we love it so much. It is the picture of this transformation that we're talking about. But if I stop and, and think for us, I think there's something lurking inside of a lot of us that comes from uh, our, our spiritual histories. It's something that makes us feel constantly disappointing in ourselves, believing that God, he still remains frustrated with us as we fail to clean up different aspects of our spiritual lives. We've been taught, you've been taught, I've been taught to revel in the payment Jesus made for our sins. Um, True and good, but then we stop there because then we go and find a certain amount of sick satisfaction telling ourselves over and over how sinful we are, focusing on our shortcomings only, and treating our lives of faith uh, kind of like an old school uh, football coach would, would do, where he would, uh, Cain would call him Coach God, right? Where he's motivating you by shame, telling you how you haven't measured up and how you've underperformed. We have some satisfaction that comes from that in our brokenness. But all that really does, I would argue, is it puts Christ back on the cross in our hearts. And it forgets about that part where we rise with him to find renewal in ourselves. It's re-crucifying Christ, even when Hebrews tells us beautifully, it says, once sins are taken care of for good, there's no longer any need to offer sacrifices for them. I think many of us, me included, need to actively fight the feeling of worthlessness that parades as piety. How could you call something worthless that Jesus decided was so valuable? He made us his children, he made us his brothers and sisters and children of the Father. Recognizing that we are loved in the grace of God toward us in Christ is the real basis for that positive self-image that we were talking about and the dynamic in our life that I know that our world seeks so deeply. The love of Christ at the cross enables us, like he did then to descend into our pain. I'm not saying that we ignore our pain. We descend into our pain and brokenness and histories for the purpose of rising out of it. All of us, when pursuing the true depth of our brokenness in ourselves, we have to follow what some will call like the U-shaped pattern of the crucifixion from G- that Jesus took from Friday to Sunday. So on Friday, he was crucified and tortured and traumatized. That's what we're talking about today. On Saturday, he was buried deep in the valley of the shadow of death. And then on Sunday, he was resurrected, which led to deep joy and hope. See, we come face to face with the depths of our sin and brokenness, not to trigger more shame and self-hatred, but to continue on the path, on that U-shaped path towards the renewed person that Christ is forming you, he's forming me, he's forming us to be. Brendan Manning again says, those who wear bulletproof vests, protecting themselves from failure, shipwreck, and heartbreak, We'll never know what love is. The unwounded life bears no resemblance to the rabbi. The reconciled heart says that everything that has happened to me 
had to happen to make me who I am without exception. Jesus knows you. He has walked through the deepest corners of your personal darkness. And then he's achieved the joy and restoration with a father that is now available to us. If you're broken and messed up and dark and full of failure, the renewal and transformation that comes from faith in Jesus is for you. That is what makes it for you. And also I'd say if you feel like you're scraping the surface of Christianity, that you've kind of been bumbling along and don't quite get this transformation talk, why people here seem to get into worship and when they talk about how Jesus has changed and transformed them, I might suggest that perhaps it's because you haven't explored the pain and sin and darkness inside of you that is waiting to be renewed by the crucified and raised Jesus so that you can rise with him into your resurrection joy. It's walking through that pain. It's it's, it's walking through and understanding who who we have been broken to be only to to lead us into the resurrected us, into the, the renewed joy that we have in a new life with Christ. So he renews our relationship with God. He renews our relationship with ourselves. And then finally, he renews our relationship with others. Got another Mark Wapata culture watch moment here. So have you also noticed, I think you have, a trend um, in our world and even within ourselves a little bit to keep our faith and spirituality personal and private and a resistance to extend it outside the four walls of ourself. You're going to hear lots of people say that they're spiritual, but they keep it to themselves. Like it's a private, personal, um, in my own room sort of act. But the cross of Christ doesn't allow, it, allow that because it brings renewal, not just in our relationship with God and in our relationship with ourselves, it brings renewal in our relationship with others. Because the sacrifice of Jesus brings us into what some have called the community of the cross, which is characterized by self-giving love because it comes from the self-giving love of Jesus. The origin of the community of the cross is the self-giving love of Jesus. How can we live a sacrificial life towards others if we keep the renewing love of Jesus to ourselves, right? It's impossible. And so this goes all the way to your neighbor and your coworker and your acquaintance, and it comes all the way home to marriage. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 5. What he, the, the picture that he decides to use in describing what a marriage relationship should look like. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul's telling us that marriage is a cross-driven, self-giving, sacrificial love that can only come from the experience of the renewing sacrificial love that Jesus has for you on the cross. Your love for your spouse then starts to become sacrificial and Christ-like as you more deeply know the way that Christ has loved you and fully given himself to you as an individual. He chose you. Jesus chose you. He chose both of you to be redeemed by him. And so what does that mean? It means that husbands, that when there's what I like to call a conflict of preference, to put it lightly, right? So when your preferences collide, or let's say that there's a need in your family, 
the way to love your wife like Christ is actually to be the first one to find a way to sacrifice for them and to, and to, put, yourself, to put yourself in a position of sacrifice because that's what Jesus did for you right? He, he sacrificed for you first to restore your relationship. And so what Paul is saying is that, that husbands sacrifice yourselves first for your wives and wives too sacrifice yourselves for your husbands. But if our belovedness and love doesn't come first from Jesus and our, on the cross, then our spouse can become the center of our, of our identity, right? Like what I'm not saying is that we have a codependent, sacrificial relationship. What I'm saying is that we find our belovedness and love in Jesus first, which allows us to sacrifice for others. But if you find your identity in your spouse, then all of a sudden small fights, they become major fights because we're looking to another person to define us in a way that only the Lord can. And that's way, way too heavy a burden for one person to carry. And isn't this really true of all of our relationships, right? Not just in marriage. If we haven't stepped into the deep soul work that seeks the love of Jesus through our darkness, then how can we possibly love someone else sacrificially? Well, even if we tried to love them sacrificially, wouldn't that just make our fragile identities crumble under our need for their approval and their love for them to bring us happiness? It it just doesn't work. And so it's a sacrificial, self-giving relationship uh, to others. And so it goes with our relationships with everyone in the church. See, Christian relationships are far more than just a creed. That's what, that's what Bible studies do. You, you acknowledge the truth, right? And we're way more than just a shared affinity. Like if you're looking for somebody with a shared affinity, go to the country club. They'll be more like you. They have food. They've got golf. We run out of Jimmy John's every event. Like we're not the place for that, right? We're not, we're not a place for shared affinity. The renewed, redeemed, worshiping, self-giving you is, the Jesus, is, is who Jesus had in mind when he went to the cross. And so he broke down the walls by his sacrifice that kept us from each other. Jesus is who brought you to us, the church. Right? So as you dig in deeper into the renewing love of Jesus, My encouragement to us is to know that Christian spirituality is not a private religious expression alone. It's also a community act. Life with Christ is a community project. We need each other for it. That's what the church is for. It's a revisiting our our main idea here. The crowning work of Jesus on the cross then was his descent into the depths of our darkness so that we could rise with him to renewed relationships with God, ourselves, and others. So as we close today, I want to encourage you to contemplate a few items together with me. First, have faith, for Jesus is faithful. Hebrews 10 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus is faithful to bring healing and forgiveness and joy Our response to him then is is faith in his sacrificial work on the cross and his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. That gift of life is available to you. He just calls you to place your faith in him alone to receive it. Like the centurion who declared that Jesus was indeed the son of God when he saw his death, Christ is calling you to put your faith in that reality and all that it might mean for you. So have faith. The second is participate. 
At the end of the Hebrews passage we've been reading, the author says, and let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up the meeting of one another as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Step into the life of the church by coming faithfully. You're here. You did it. I'm so glad you're here. Continue to come faithfully, right? Seek out a relationship with someone else in the church or another believer. And then by the affirming love of God, this is the stretch. I encourage you to to seek out, to be vulnerable, maybe with somebody in your community group. Share, share something with them about a sin or, or a brokenness that you're experiencing, pain that you're experiencing. Because finding renewal in your life with God, as we said, it is a community project. So participate with us in that. And then finally, pray and reflect. This kind of self-knowledge and experience of your belovedness by the Father is not short surface level work. It's long and reflective work that requires prayer and patience and a perpetually open heart. It doesn't come from your own strength, though, but from the power of the Spirit within you. So so as we and I encourage you to, to seek the Lord in prayer and meditation faithfully so that you can discover the healing that comes from the love that he has for you, that he expressed for us on the cross. Let's pray together.